Hey, podcast family. Michael Miller, it's been a minute. So glad to be back with the church here in Dallas. Just finished our third service. God is on the move here, and we're grateful for those that glean from us and receive from us uh, on the podcast platform. Hey, I am doing a series on women, uh, women in the church specifically. Uh, This week we looked at um, why God created Eve and that text in Genesis 2, verse 18 and onward. And we look at uh, her her role in being a helper suitable for Adam. And then we flip over to Ephesians chapter 5 and how Paul continues that theme in addressing husbands and wives. Uh, bless you. I hope this encourages you, men, women. Uh, especially young women, and that uh, Jesus would meet you, encounter you, and uh, just set you free to be you, set you free to manifest his glory, his identity. We are image bearers of uh, Jesus. So, man, go for it. Love you. Thank you, Kevin. How's everyone? Good morning. Um, If you have your Bibles, we'll be in Genesis chapter 2 and then Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, I wasn't worship beautiful, so grateful for Laura and Jonathan and the team. Thank you guys. Another debriefing, but just so refreshing to be in the presence of the Lord. And uh, I have good news. Last weekend, I was in London preaching, and uh, I bring back such a good testimony about what God's doing in Europe. I was in one of the larger churches in northern London. It's probably 60% African, and there is such hunger and fire in London, and I met so many leaders from Europe that are just hungry for the presence of God, and I'm coming back so hope-filled for Europe. We hear so many things about the church in Europe, a post-Christian context, but man, there are some, there's a remnant that's burning for the Lord uh, there in London. Um, it is it is beautiful. Uh, I, I took my daughters with me, and uh, we had tea where the queen has tea. Which yeah, that's I was like yeah sure we're in London. It's my girls. I'm a girl dad. I'll take them there. And then I got the bill. <laughs> it was insane. It was a small. Anyways, take a loan out for the three teas we had, but. Um, it was just such a cool couple of days just to see what God is doing um, across the earth. You know, our faith is, there's this meta-narrative that's happening. And uh, you've been, you're part of a story that's much bigger than you. And you are playing a part. But man, when you get to see what God is doing outside of these walls, outside of our world, it just gives you such courage uh, just to keep going. So, um, yes and amen. Hallelujah. Hey, we're reading the Bible uh, 24 24 days, it's called NT24. We have just around, I think around 3,000 people that have signed up to walk through the New Testament in 24 days. Uh, if you're just hearing about this or you haven't been, um, haven't been doing it, it's okay, hop in today. Uh, it's about 10 chapters, um, 10 chapters a day, and we're doing it together. Kevin mentioned a fast. Some of us are, are fasting alongside of these 24 days, but we wanted to get people in the Word of God. Uh, The Word of God builds your faith. Um, You need to have a personal relationship with the scriptures and doing it together, it's really encouraging. Uh, We'll do a Zoom call this Wednesday where we'll have an hour long Bible study. Um, You can hop on with a couple hundred people and we'll just walk through scriptures. It's also really cool, every morning, um, if you go to your Bible app, your YouVersion app, um, you just type in, in the plan section, type in upper room and NT24 will pop up and every morning there's a devotional from one of our staff members. Uh, So Haley was this morning. What's up, Haley? She's in the back. She uh, works for Global, and um, it's such a, it's on John, John 11 through 20, and hers was on forgiveness yesterday. Megan Baldwin did one, who's in our accounting department. And so it's just fun to see the different uh, hearts and people um, sharing their thoughts on Scripture. So dive into that, NT24. Let's go. Amen and amen. I also have a QR code for tonight, uh, for this morning's uh, sermon. Um, I'm going to start a series that I've been uh, talking about doing for some time. Been dangling this carrot before you, and uh, we're for the next at least week, two weeks. We're going to be looking at uh, women, women's role in the Bible, and uh, I know, long awaited. Uh, 
And, and so I wanted to, um, I've got, I had like 10 pages of notes for this sermon, and so I'm just going to give them to you. And this is a topic that I'm not going to be able to do uh, justice with, with an hour, two hours, three hours, however many sessions we have. Um, you're going to need to do some studying on your own. And so uh, I, these notes are, again, forgive me if there's grammatical errors in there. This is actually my preaching notes. I'm just giving them to you so you get to see how I think. But uh, I have some resources on there, and there's six resources that I've used that I found very helpful for me. Uh, a couple of them are books. One worth mentioning um, that I've really enjoyed over the last couple of weeks is by Lauren Cunningham, who was the founder of YWAM. And uh, he has a book called Why Not Women? Um, the second half of that book, it's actually very, very profound theologically. Um, one of the counter, his counterparts, uh, an associate there, I forgot his name um, off the top of my head, I think it's Hamilton, uh, has a lot of theological um, just framework for viewing some of the more... Um, some of the more complex texts around women in ministry. And so I encourage you to do that. There's also a, oh yeah, here it is. There's also Preston Sprinkles, um, Theology in the Raw. He has a podcast, Podcast 1100, where he interviews Rick Warren. Uh, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this last year was just uh, some, of the, some of the conversations surrounding this topic. And Rick Warren created quite a splash because he moved from being a compliment complementarianist, which I'll talk about here in a second, to an egalitarianist, which is equality and that women can serve as pastors, and he was kicked out of the Southern Baptist Convention. And so he talks about his journey, um, theologically, his journey as a pastor, his journey um, in transitioning his church into that, and then the response from uh, the Southern Baptist Convention, which is, again, really fascinating, and Preston Sprinkle is probably varies a little bit in what Rick would view uh, from Wick, Rick's perspective on it. And so it's just a, it's a healthy conversation. The last one is Oak Hills Church. So I grew up Church of Christ. The Oak Hills Church transitioned their church, and they had a doctrinal advisory group that did a 119-page report on this. And I found it fascinating. Again, you can go as deep as you want into this subject. Uh, these uh, resources aren't just uh, presenting one side. Um, a lot of them present both sides. So anyways, helpful. Hopefully you'll engage this, and I want to pray for us. Is that cool? Actually, I want to start out by praying for the women. If you're a woman uh, in the room, would you just stand up? I want to start out by just praying for you. I want to honor you. I want to honor you as uh, image bearers of our God. And I want to honor you uh, as a part of this body. And my desire... Um, over the course of the next couple of weeks is to give you wings and for you uh, to be liberated, for you um, to submit to the Holy Spirit and that you would manifest his glory, you would manifest um, his beauty as only you can. And so I just want to bless you as a pastor in this house and just any religious framework that has made you feel secondary or like a second-class citizen in a community like this, I want to ask for your forgiveness right out of the gates. And uh, I just want you to know that our leadership as a whole uh, wants to empower you um, and wants to uh, honor you, and uh, I just bless you. So, Father, would you um, release your love into this room, love that casts out fear, um, love that... Uh, renews us. Um, Lord, you said that husbands are to uh, wash their wives as you've washed us uh, with the water of your word. And I pray you would wash all of us, men and women, under the, the, the power of your word, that you would cleanse us and that you would give us your heart around this subject. And uh, Father, that the curse has been broken and that it's for freedom that you set us free. And I pray, Lord, that we can be liberated um, into, uh, into laying our lives down, into, into to submitting to you, Holy Spirit, submitting to one another. Um, I pray that you would wash us even of the cultural narrative around this topic, Lord. Uh, we don't want to be cultural. We want to be biblical. And so... Uh, give us just an appetite for your word today. Give me a grace, Lord, to communicate um, in humility and, and wisdom. But I pray, Holy Spirit, that, that just your daughters, your daughters uh, would be free, that they would prophesy, that they would 
um, run, that they would, they would herald, Lord, um, this news that you've given to us, even as Mary, Lord, the first proclamation of the gospel, I have seen the Lord. Lord, would you just break any chains that, um, that, that women find themselves under because of this topic? So we honor you, we bless you, in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Amen, you can be seated. Uh, <clears throat> so <clears throat> there's two texts that uh, we'll unpack hopefully next weekend that talk about just limitations on women in church services. Uh, the context of those texts are very important, um, but uh, it's in, one of them's in 1 Timothy chapter 2, another one's in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, so we'll look at this. Um, but one of the things that I wanted to just highlight from the beginning is when Jesus came, um, in first century, when, when the word became flesh, the, the environment that Jesus was ministering in was, was uh, one in which women were oppressed. It was misogynistic. Um, women were seen just a little higher than animals. Um, they were uh, oftentimes viewed as property or possessions that the men would have. Um, at the age of five, formal education started and uh, women were excluded from formal education. So their education would stop at five years old. They would be uh, put in domestic, uh, domestic roles and then the, the boys would be trained up specifically in the Torah, um, in the Jewish tradition. Uh, and so uh, Jesus was engaging a culture where, um, where women were oppressed. And, uh, women were not of equal structure in the spiritual community. Um, they could not uh, study the Torah altogether. Um, they were allowed to quote it at certain occasions and read it at certain occasions, but they certainly weren't allowed to study it. And um, also during this, this, this time frame that Jesus walked, uh, they weren't allowed to testify in court trials. Um, they could not go out in public or talk to men when outside their homes. They need to be doubly veiled. Uh, they were considered second-class Jews, excluded from the worship and teaching of God with uh, status scarcely above that of slaves. So I, I mention that because you see these texts where Jesus actually engages women. Like Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, her taking a posture that Jesus, you're my rabbi and I'm going to learn from you. That was countercultural. Um, when you see Jesus engaging the woman at the well, not only was she a woman, but she was a Samaritan, which Jews didn't relate to Samaritan, much less female Samaritans. And you have one of the uh, first times that Jesus reveals that he's a Messiah to her. Um, he reveals intimate details about his father and what his father is searching for, worshipers that worship in spirit and truth. Uh, Jesus had a company that went with him. We know the 12 disciples, but Luke chapter eight tells us that among them were women as well, that women were following them um, as they followed the Lord. And then I think of Mary Magdalene, which I mentioned earlier, she was the first one to see the resurrected Lord. She was the first one to proclaim the gospels. It's some of the most powerful words, I think, in the text is John chapter uh, 20, where Mary shows up to the disciples and she says, I have seen the Lord. Beautiful. The first evangelist was a woman. Uh, we'll look at um, women in ministry next weekend, specifically the gifts that they're empowered to walk out. But today I wanted to talk about just uh, the origin of men and women and give us uh, an understanding of why woman was made, uh, how she was to complement and support and actually defend and protect Adam. Um, that's all in Genesis chapter one. But I wanna look at as well at the backdrop that we have, um, both church history and then also in our city. I think this topic is really important for the city of Dallas, and I'll, I'll show you that here in a second. Uh, I shared some quotes from some church fathers last night. Uh, we had a full house last night. This place was, it was crazy how many people were here on a Sunday, uh, Saturday night. And I, I walk through, I have these, these just crazy quotes from church fathers, guys that have really uh, shaped our faith uh, throughout the centuries but their views of women, um, some of them were fairly skewed. And I gave these quotes last night and people were just in shock that these men said it. So I'm only gonna give you a couple of them. They're all in your notes. But the first one was Augustine. Um, Augustine said this, he said, what is the difference whether it is a wife or a mother? It is still Eve, the temptress, that we must be aware of in any woman. I fail to see what use a woman can be to man if one excludes the function of bearing children. 
told you. These are soft ones compared to the, the big ones. So uh, Jerome, Jerome in uh, the fourth century, again, I'm just sharing this because this is, there's a lot of traditions that we've inherited around this subject and traditions are amazing. Uh, we've inherited a lot of wonderful traditions, but I think around this subject, we've inherited some traditions that are actually pretty destructive. Uh, Jerome in the fourth century said, as long as a woman is for birth and children, she's different from man as body is from soul. But if she wishes to serve Christ more than the world, then she will cease to be a woman and will be called a man. John Knox said this, woman in her greatest perfection was made to serve and obey men. Um, so I, I, I'm, just, I'm just trying to kind of crack open the conversation to show you <laughs> that uh, these, these aren't just randos that I picked out from church history. These are, these are prominent church fathers that uh, have, have, again, there's, there's a lot that they've given to us, but I could quote uh, Martin Luther. I could quote um, a couple of them. I know. Do <laughs> It's in your notes, I promise. That's why I printed them out. It's in your notes. But let me bring it, let me bring it really down to a, a regional level on a local level in the city of Dallas. And I think, um, you know, when, when you think about our city, uh, God had a purpose and destiny for her. Um, God has eternal purposes for Dallas, Texas. We are living here, serving him in this city for a reason. And um, Randy Skinner uh, did a book on, on, on this. It's called Why God Created Dallas. And I'm going to read you an excerpt from it because you can see the historical foundations of, hang on just before you throw that up just a second. You can see some foundational uh, historical ways that women have impacted the church in our city. But I also think you can see uh, one of the, the strongholds over our city. Um, Dallas is uh, religious belt. In fact, I could probably argue that it's the buckle of the belt. Um, there are more mega churches and prominent church leaders in this region, really the Dallas Fort Worth region, but you'd be hard pressed to find one movement that has a prominent female leader in our city. That a, that a, that a, that a prominent female leader has emerged as a proclaimer, as a heralder. Um, uh, within the church. Um, the majority of them, if not all of them that I know of are men. Now, I know that's a, that's a generalized statement. So you may know some that I don't, but for the most part, haven't been a lot of prominent uh, uh, women. And then when you think also, uh, uh, I'm so grateful that Roe was overturned last year. Um, we've been praying for that for a long, long time. But uh, Norma McCorvey, who filed against her her the father of, I guess, was it her husband? I don't know who it was, but it, anyways, Roe v. Wade was filed um, in the, the city courts of Dallas. Uh, Roe v. Wade started in this city. Uh, I've had prayer meetings in the courtroom where uh, it was first uh, filed, which would go to the Supreme Court, and, and since that time, millions of babies in our nation have been aborted. And I, I think that tells you something about the significance of Dallas, um, from a spiritual standpoint. And so um, Randy speaks to that. But in, in this, I want you to see historically how women have led in the church. Uh, this is a book that he wrote in 2007. Historically, women have played a major role in the establishment of righteousness in our city and region. The Hughes family, which one of the first prominent families in Dallas, uh, who performed uh, the first major Christian work in the Dallas region provides us with an excellent example of this trend. The six Hughes daughters were instrumental in both the physical and spiritual development of Dallas. Nancy Jane Hughes, the first of the Hughes sisters to arrive, settled north of Turtle Creek. She and her husband, William M. Corcoran, uh, uh, helped establish Corcoran's Chapel in 1848. Miss Corcoran Hughes decided to donate the land to the church in 1857 in the face of men in the community who reluctantly gave money for churches and schools and then wanted to control them. Women have played a major role in the spiritual development of the region. Nancy's sister Mary and her husband Isaac Webb moved to the city in 1849. The Webbs donated land for another Methodist church north of the Cochrans. Cochrans. Um, throughout the 1840s and 1850s, uh, the rest of the sisters arrived settling in Turtle Creek, Oaklawn, and record crossing uh, of the Trinity. In the 1850s, the sisters convinced their brother, the Reverend William 
Buck Hughes and his wife to join them in Dallas. He eventually became the presiding elder of the Methodist work in the Dallas area and later built the first Methodist church on the Marsh Street. Thus, the Hughes women played a significant role in the first major spiritual work in the Dallas area. Isn't that cool? I thought that was really interesting, um, these six sisters and their role. Um, And so I believe that there's a move of God that's going to emerge, and I believe it's going to come out of the city of Dallas that's going to involve women. Women leading, women preaching, women ministering. Uh, I believe God is going to pour out his spirit, and it says your sons and daughters will prophesy. That the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, it is not uh, isolated to one sex, but it's both. And we uh, we need that. Um, I, I, believe, I believe it's coming. I believe it's here. Uh, so from a, from a theological standpoint, there's really two uh, lenses that we view this conversation. I've got the definitions behind them. I'm not going to read them. I struggle putting, I almost didn't put these definitions before you because I think we can generalize and label people and label camps, and I don't think they're very helpful. Um, you have an egalitarian component and a complementarian component. I have friends that are on both sides of the issues. Some of them are very soft complementarianists, and I understand where they get that from Scripture. So I'm not ready to, you know, bring a massive division because of this subject because we don't need more division in the body of Christ. We need unity. Um, but I, I do, I do, if I, probably if I'm not egalitarian, complementarian, I think I'm a libertarian. Like, I want to see women free. I want to see their God-given identity, destinies. Um, I just want to break off any shackles or chains. And it's not, it's not about, um, you know, I, I think there's, there's a wrong response from a secular standpoint. And you see that uh, playing out in culture. And really the problem is the curse. It's Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. Uh, sin affected the dynamics between men and women. Uh, there is a component to this that we have to acknowledge, and it's why we need the leadership of Jesus under this subject and under this topic. But the question is, is are women to be, ex- uh, you know, are they to be excluded? Um, limited exclusion, which is there's certain roles that they can't fulfill in the church, or is there unlimited inclusion for women? And uh, we're gonna do a position paper, uh, our elders are, we'll put that online, just because we want to be very clear on this stance. But I, I want you to know, I cannot emphasize this enough. I am not doing this because of the political climate. I'm not doing this because of some alternative agenda. I think whenever you start talking about this subject, people start to label you liberal or progressive or you're going to take us woke. And I have zero desires for any of that. I simply want to relay scriptures before you. And I, I want, uh, again, I've seen the power of this uh, in my own life and in my relationship with my wife, and I want to encourage husbands. Husbands, I'm preaching to you. This isn't necessarily, it is for women and it is to liberate them, but I want to give husbands tools to empower their wives and to love their wives and to serve their wives. And I think, um, I think this has to play out in the home. Uh, I have a passion to see my two daughters. I've got two daughters. I want to see them. Uh, soar and fulfill God's calling and destiny on their life. And so I'm preaching as a husband, I'm preaching as a father, uh, and this is very practical and real in my life. And I'll give you some examples of how that um, has, has played out. So if you have your Bibles, we're in Genesis chapter uh, 2. In the beginning, God created them, male and female. So there's two creation accounts. Uh, The first one's Genesis 1, and then there's a second creation account in Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 1, we see that God created them male and female. Uh, 127 says, uh, God created man in his own image. Uh, In the image of God, he created him male and female. So male and female are image bearers of God. There's a distinct, unique expression and image that we bear with the feminine and masculine identities that we've been given. Your gender is important. God assigned it to you. God specifically assigned you. It says you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And your gender is unique to who you are. And he gave that with intent. He gave that with purpose. And if you're confused about your gender in any way, shape, or form, because culture is dangling that bait out. You need to be connected to your creator because you were created with intent. Your design is unique. 
and you were created male and female, and both of these are image bearers of God, and they were called to rule. They were called in their identity as image bearers to carry authority, and that authority was to reign on the earth. Uh, In the Psalms, it says, the Lord's in the heavens and he does what he pleases, but he's given the earth to the sons of men. And so we have been delegated authority on the earth uh, to expand the dominion of his kingdom that is coming in increasing measure, as it says in Isaiah, of the increase of his kingdom and peace, there will be what? No end. And we are bearers of that. We are co-laboring with him. And so your identity your gender, it's really important for you to connect to your creator because you're going to express the image of that glory to those that know you and meet you. Um, And so I wanna look at, when you look at this topic, you have to understand what biblical authority is because it's really about, when you look at, at, at the difference between these views, it's about who carries the authority. Can women carry authority? Paul would say in 1 Timothy chapter 2, I don't allow a woman to have authority. And we'll look at that because it's not a different word that he uses, but authority is the issue. Authority in the home, authority in the church. And so I want to make sure that when we hear authority that we don't think like the Gentiles did in Jesus' day because Jesus would say, hey, the Gentiles in their authority lord it over you. But my authority is different. If you want to be great, you need to become the least. If you want to be first, you're actually the last. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. That's kingdom authority. That's kingdom authority. And so we'll see that in the Genesis 1 account. um, Here as we, or Genesis 2 account, look at this. uh, Verse 7. Verse 7 is the formation of man. So then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and God breathed into the first Adam the breath of life and man became a living being or a living soul. So body, soul, and spirit. This is the creation of Adam. And then God took Adam after he created him. Look in verse eight. The Lord God planted a garden towards the east, and in Eden, he placed the man whom he had formed, and he was to cultivate that garden. And verse nine says, out of the ground, the Lord caused to grow every tree that is pleasing. So as God put this authoritative, delegated authoritative uh, uh, man, Adam, in the garden to cultivate it, it began bearing fruit. Now, I've, I've mentioned this scripture a lot to us in regards to authority, but look at Genesis chapter two, five. Look at Genesis chapter two, five. Just go back a couple of verses because in Genesis chapter two, five, you see before Genesis two, seven, the creation of man, the forming of man, that the earth was not bearing fruit. Trees were not growing, plants were not growing, flowers were not growing, and there's a specific reason why. It says the Lord God had not sent rain, and it says that he had not yet formed man. There was no man to cultivate the earth. So this tells me that earth's earth's potential, earth's design, God's intent for the earth was directly connected to the authorities that he would put over it. And once God delegated that authority to man and man begins cultivating the earth, what happens? The potential of that design is unlocked and the earth starts bearing fruit. So this to me is an example of biblical authority. This is what Jesus did for you. It's a picture of the cross actually because God hadn't sent rain, which God would do in Genesis 2, 7, in this, he would send a mist, he would create man and vegetation would come. But this is the gospel. God sent rain, not in a physical form, but a spiritual form, which is his spirit. The first Adam was replaced by the second Adam who would have authority over the dust of the earth, which is you and me. And the potential was corrupted by sin, but he, and it was cursed, or potential was cursed, but he, he who is hung on a tree becomes a curse. He 
paid the price for sin. He reconciled us back to the Father. And by the power of the Spirit and the work of the Son, we're born of an incorruptible seed. And he starts working that out. And you who were once dead are made alive. You who once were condemned are now set free. This is the lordship of the the, the spirit and the son's work in your life, that your potential was unlocked. Are you following me? This is good news. And so I, I just want you to see what, what, what biblical authority does. Biblical authority should create a greenhouse of sorts where those that are born of this incorruptible seed start to manifest their destiny, start to manifest their identity, start to manifest their gifts, that we start functioning as a body in unity, in harmony, free, submitted to one another, submitted to the Holy Spirit, and functioning under his lordship to fulfill his purposes. This is the beauty, I think, of authority. This isn't about domineering. This isn't about control. This isn't about I'm the first. This isn't about me being the head. Like I know those verses are in here, but we need to hear them through a biblical lens and the heart of Jesus, that Jesus as the head came and he gave his life. And we're going to read here in a second in Ephesians 5 that husbands, that's our call to love our brides as God has loved the church. Woo. So this is biblical authority, Genesis 2. But here's, here's what's interesting. In that scenario, um, we'll look at the creation of women. I know we're talking about women. So Genesis 2.18 is the introduction of Eve. And look at Genesis 2.18. It's a really interesting verse. Then the Lord God said, it is not good. Let's just pause there. It is not good. This is Eden. There were six days. He's speaking everything into existence. He ended every day saying, ooh, it's good. It's good. Then when he created man, he said, ooh, this is very good. But in that perfect Edenic state, he looks at what he's created and he says, whoa, whoa, something is not good. What was not good? For man to be alone. For man to be alone. Now, why would it not be good for man to be alone? Now, most of us think, well, man needed a companion. Man needed someone that would serve and aid him. And I, I could go there with you, but I started to, whenever I like get into Hebrew and Torah and stuff, I put Rabbi Jason on speed dial. I'm like, hey, Rabbi, what's, tell me, like, you know, because he always, he's always says this, wait, there's more. And I'm like, Rabbi, do you have a wait, there's more in this? And so he sent me some resources and I've just been diving through it. And I was listening to uh, one, one modern day rabbi talk about this. And, and he was asked the question, why was it not good for man to be alone? And this was his answer. He said, because there was an enemy. There was an enemy. And God didn't want Adam to face that enemy alone. He was giving him someone that could combat and face his enemy in the garden. That she was, de- she was designed to give him to him to fight this battle. And, and the phrase, listen to this, this the, 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 the Hebrew language here actually fits that description for Eve because she's described as, uh, as I will make for him a helper suitable, a helper suitable. So these are the first two words for uh, women, a helper that's suitable, a help meet, a, a corresponding um, help is, is how some translate it. And, and these words are, are really important. The, the, the two words are um, ezor kenegdu, ezor kenegdu. And I want to look at both of these words. Ezer is, is helper. That's, that's the word for helper here. Now, it's used 21 times in Scripture. Everyone say 21. 21 times in Scripture. Twice for Eve. Twice for Eve. Uh, three times it's used when another nation comes and assists Israel in a battle. 
when Israel was going against an enemy that Israel could not defeat, an Ezer or another nation was sent to Israel to help fight that enemy. So that's used three times. So there's 16 other times that it's used. And those 16 times, it's all used in relationship to God. Ezer is a God relating to Israel. And it's all, it's all in the context of him coming to help them in their weakness. I read all these verses and discover Ezer is used consistently in a military context, which again, why was it not good for man to be alone? Because there was an enemy. If you, if you are bullied, you need someone that can help you. My kids have math problems. They need someone that can help them. This is, this is the context for Ezer. It's someone that comes in and helps in weakness, helps in... It's almost as if you're getting leverage over that which you can't get leverage to. It was not a subservient peon. It was someone that was more capable, more powerful, and intellect, an intelligent ally to that person. And look at these scriptures, 16. Here, here's, here's the word Ezer in scripture, Exodus 18, verse 4. Exodus 18, verse 4. These are all in your notes. <clears throat> I want you to read it, so I'm going to pause until it's up there. Exodus 18.4. I just want you to see these scriptures. This is in the context of, uh, this is in the context of, of the Exodus narrative. It says, the other one was Eleazar, for he said, the God of my father was my Ezer, was my help, and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. So God delivering the Israelites from Pharaoh. That, that, that's how Ezer's used. The next one is in... Um, it's Moses' final blessing. It's Deuteronomy 33, verse 29. Deuteronomy 33, verse 29. Blessed are you, Israel, who is like you. Deuteronomy 33, 29. Blessed are you, Israel, who is like you. A people saved by the Lord. Here it is, this third line. Who is the shield of your Ezer? who is your shield and your help, it could be translated that way, and the sword of your majesty, so that your enemies will cringe before you and you will tread upon their high places. Again, in the context of conflict. The, the last one that I wanted to share, there's 16 of them, so I'm <laughs> having mercy on you not reading all 16. But Psalms 121, this is a scripture that you all know. Psalms 121, verse one. It says, uh, I will raise my eyes to the hills, or I will look to the hills from where my help comes from. That's easier. That's easier. And so this is the one, the one who is helping in each of these cases is offering help to someone, something who needs help, who, who needs leverage over a conflict or a problem. Uh, I asked Rabbi Jason about this word, Ezer Kenego, and he says it conveys, this is a quote from Rabbi, it conveys uh, the idea, the task that God has given is big and important and that a man is not cap capable of fulfilling his divine assignment by himself. He needs a partner that will spiritually, morally, emotionally, missionally help to complement and complete man and his call. Only together can they truly reflect the fullness of the divine image. Uh, one of the, the, the Hebrew word for Ezar, which you know, there's, there's pictures. Uh, each, each letter has a symbol associated with it. And the symbol for woman is I, man, and sword. I, man, and sword, or I, man, and weapon. Which again reinforces this, this idea that women are called to help fight. <laughs> what? You're, you're the original Wonder Woman. Like, here we are. Ezer, Ezer, one definition was that Ezer was the revealer of the enemy. Perfectly suited to help you, not fail. She will protect you, a watchman, a protector, a nurturer. Um, this, Yahweh had not in mind a subservience or a patriarchal hierarchy. You can't find that in Genesis 1-2 account. 
His choice of Ezer indicates that this woman is the man's first line of defense. Ezer is Yahweh's gift to the husband within his family. She is built that way. So the second word is konegdo, and uh, it literally means equal, suitable, equal. Uh, Genesis 2.18 could read, a help corresponding to him or equal and adequate to himself. Konegdo indicates that Ezer is the man's match. It literally means yin and yang. I love how uh, Victor Hamilton, this is in your, your notes as well from Asbury University, says this, Konegdo suggests that what God creates for Adam will correspond to him. Thus, the new creation will be neither a superior nor an inferior, but an equal. The creation of this helper will form one half of a polarity and will be, sorry, and will be, my wife is a speech therapist, she's gonna help me with that, and will be to man, and will be to man as the South Pole is to the North Pole. So this corresponding. This is the point that I'm trying to make with these two definitions is that woman was not created to serve man, but woman was created to serve with man. They were created to serve together as a suitable harmony, as a suitable helper, and it was unto harmony. And if you read, uh, there's one verse uh, dedicated to Adam's creation. There's six to women. And so we just read verse 18, hop down to verse 21. It says, uh, this, is, this is the creation of a woman in Adam's response, which is really important. Verse 21, so the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man and listen to the man's response. This is, this is a poem. This is like a, a, a song. If God didn't sing creation, which some people think he did, this would be the first song, and it's Adam's response to his wife, and he says, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of me. You hear harmony, you hear union, you hear oneness. And it's, it's reemphasized by verse 24, and this is the institution of marriage. These, this is a husband and a wife. This is, this is God forming family. Family is, I think, there's, there's three, I think, delegated institutions. You have civic government, the church, and the family. And the first one established here is family, and it's husband and wife. Husband awakes, see, sees Eve, and goes, oh, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. That's his response. And then Genesis 2.24, which is the framework for biblical sexuality, because this plays out into your sexuality. Your proper view of the opposite sex or your own sex affects your sexuality. And sexuality is introduced in Genesis chapter 2.24, where it says, for this reason, a man. Now in Jesus's day, a man didn't leave his family. A woman left her family. She had to pay a dowry. That's how twisted things got from Genesis 2.24. In fact, Jesus points to Genesis 2.24 when he's asked about divorce. Is it rightful for a man to divorce his wife? Because men could divorce their wives for anything. He points to Genesis 2.24. It's not right for a man to leave his wife. It's actually him leaving everything else for her. And look at this. He says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, union, harmony, mutual submission, connection. This is the original intent and design for man and woman. This is where sexuality is introduced. Any any activity, any sexual activity that's not found in Genesis chapter 2, Verse 24 is out of bounds, according to the Bible. Your sexuality was designed to be expressed to someone of the opposite sex that you are in covenant with both here and here. It's a God-given institution. Marriage established the family. Like, government can't redefine this. This is something that was birthed before sin itself, and it was given to us so that man can relate to woman, and this 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 divinely intimate expression between the two, it says that they become one. And literally what happens from this union is we get one flesh. I've got one of them over there in a yellow sweater. 
What's up, say? You'll appreciate this sermon when you're much older. <laughs> that, but this is why, like, this is why it, it, you have to see the enemy. He's reverse engineering this. He's gone after marriage and said, no, this isn't what marriage is. We're going to distort marriage. And then once he's done that, now what's happening? He's distorting the identity of people's genders. He, he's undermining this institution because it's so sacred, so holy, and needs to be not only defended, but proclaimed so that people have clarity over these issues. The Bible's very clear. And this institution is about union. It's about oneness. It's about you and your wife before men, women, you and your spouses before God's eyes. You are one, one. How does that happen? I don't know, but it says it that in, from his view, you are one together. This is why divorce is so painful. You're taking that which is one and you're tearing it apart. Now, God is so good and amazing and he can redeem anything, but but some of us have been a part of families in that. And so this thing has a lot of ramifications as we look at. And so union was the key. Oneness. There's no mention of hierarchy, patriarchy, one above the other. In Genesis 2, the account, it's union. It's mutual submission. It's help and equal image, shared origin, shared identity, shared hope. Now, we know what happens. Genesis 3 happens. And we'll get into uh, Eve being deceived because Paul, Paul would mention this in, in 1 Timothy 2. So I'm not actually going to talk about the deception. But I do think that he was coming after her as we saw in Ezer is a defense. He was undermining her purpose as a watchman, and honestly, Adam was standing right there with him, so um, anyways, Genesis 3, um, what we have to see, God curses the serpent, and then he tells Adam and Eve the consequences of their decision, curses the serpent, and harmony between the man and the woman is shattered, this harmony, this union, this, if you think of like music, that's beautiful, all of a sudden, the notes started to clang. All of a sudden, the sound just got really hard to hear. Um, he blames her, she blames the serpent, and then, and then God says this in Genesis 3.15, he talks about the seed that's gonna come through the woman, and it's the plan of redemption. This is the, 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 the prophecy of a coming redeemer, Jesus. But it's 3.16. 3.16 that I wanted to show you. 3.16 says, to the woman, I will greatly multiply your, child, uh, your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. So the consequences of sin affected the harmony between man and woman. And it talks, it talks about a hierarchical order here. It talks about the curse of sin disrupted the union between men and women. The curse of sin brought a disharmony. It shattered that connection and that relationship. And it, it actually compares this. So your desire will be for your husband and that he will rule over you. That word for desire for your husband. Listen, Eve desired Adam prior to the fall. This isn't like, this is a twisted desire. This is, this is a, a it's, it's that void that sin causes in them attempting to fill that void through having that connection to a man. And this can come in two ways. It can come from this, like, like you're a doormat. You know, women that are just, just passive and thrown around, or you've got the Jezebel thing. But, but it, it's this disharmony. And what we'll talk about, we'll talk about those, those things later in the thing. But I want you to see desire and rule. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. These two words, desire and rule, are only used together in one other context. And it's in the next chapter. It's Genesis chapter four, verse seven. Look at this. It's how the Lord describes Cain's relationship to sin. Genesis four, seven. Look at this. If you do well, you will, uh, will your countenance not be lifted up. And if you do not well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must rule it. You must master it. So the two relationships, sin's desire was for Cain He's saying, hey, you've got to master these things, which we know he wouldn't. Cain would kill his brother because sin would master him because we're enslaved to it. 
and the relationship that Cain had with sin, the Bible says, woman, you're going to be in the same complex dynamics with man. That's a part of the curse. It's, it, it has disrupted this harmony. It's disrupted this unity. We see it. Men objectify women. We see it in, in commercials. We see it online. We see this thing is playing out all the time. We're just kind of like so accustomed to it. But here's the beauty is that Jesus came. Here's the beauty is that Jesus broke the curse. Here's the beauty is we don't have to live under this reality because a second Adam has come and he has fully paid the price to redeem us. And I think that, that, that sword that went in his side with blood and water coming out, yes, I believe the church was birthed, but I also believe a second Eve or, or a redeemed woman was provided in that moment that you don't have to live under this anymore. Am I saying that this means you need to be like a active, secular, feminist and go march them all? No, I'm saying you're liberated from the effects of sin and you can actually now be a daughter of God and you just present yourself to him. It's about submitting to him. We needed Jesus. A marriage isn't 50%, one person 50% another. A family is not 51% the husbands and 49% the wives. This, this is saying that we get to be 100% connected, 100% in union. And Paul would emphasize this. So I just have a couple of minutes, but, but I wanted to, go to, uh, wanted to go to a text because I'm, I'm talking about husbands and wives and union. I really want to emphasize union this morning, connection, oneness, that the two will become one. And Paul emphasizes this in his household code. So in Ephesians, it's a beautiful book. Um, he's laying out just the doctrine of salvation, Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 2, uh, Ephesians 2, 10, 8, 8, 8 9, and 10 is, is actually where you're saved by faith. He, he introduces saved by faith. Um, or, yeah, and then and he talks about the church, but then... In Ephesians chapter five, he starts, he starts listing out practical ways, like how the rubber meets the road here, how this plays out into your life. And look in Ephesians chapter five, verse one. If you're with me, say I'm with you. All right, Ephesians five, one. Therefore be imitators of God. So, so he's, he's shifting, saying be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Walk in love. This is to everyone. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice of God, as a fragrant aroma. And he's gonna get into practicals of that. He's gonna talk about not giving into immorality, watch your words. And then if you flip over to verse 17, he concludes it and says, so do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So this is the will of the Lord. And then he's gonna go into one Greek sentence. And your English translations don't do justice to the sentence that I'm about to read. But Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 through 22 are one sentence in the Greek. One sentence in the Greek. And, and it's, it's, it's a long sentence, but it's built around two imperative verbs or two imperative commands. And that's in verse 18. Verse 18 are the imperative commands. And then underneath the imperative commands are subordinate commands that reinforce the imperative one. Does this make sense? Okay, so verse 18 is the imperative command, and this is verse 18. It says, do not be filled with wine, which leads to debauchery. Do not be filled with wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So this is the imperative command. Don't get drunk, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I think, I think he's playing here with like Acts chapter two when the Holy Spirit's poured out. What did they think? They thought these men are drunk. So, so he's talking about being intoxicated, being under the influence of the Spirit, being filled with the Holy Spirit. So don't get drunk with wine, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then, and then in the same sentence, he's going to give them examples of what being filled with the Holy Spirit looks like. This is how you're filled with the Holy Spirit. These commands support the overarching command, which is being filled with the Holy Spirit. Speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We do that a lot here. Singing, making music in your heart. I think it's so interesting that three, the first three all have to do with song. That's something about song and being filled with the Holy Spirit. Always giving thanks, so thanksgiving. These are things you should probably do often in your marriage. 
speaking to one another, singing, making music, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the last one that's a part of this sentence is submitting. And he's not specifically talking to one demographic. He's speaking to everyone, submitting to one another. Everyone say one another. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then it actually says, so in your Bible, what happens in this sentence is your Bible stops here and then there's a subtitle. And then under the subtitle, it says, wives submit to your husbands. But in the context of wives, and and the word submit isn't even actually in there. It's referring to the previous verb. So it's wives submit to your husbands as you submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. What is my point? My point is mutual submission. My point is that I've, I've been in a number of marital counseling sessions like, she just needs to submit. Well, my response is, are you, are you presenting the Ephesians 5 man that she's submitting under? Now, I'm not saying that we submit to one another because the Bible tells us to. Us submitting to one another is actually us submitting to Christ. That's why we submit. We submit because we're filled with the Holy Spirit. But then he's going to go into household codes from being filled with the Holy Spirit. And he's going to say, hey, wives, this is what it looks like for you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Husbands, this is what it looks like for you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Kids, this is what it looks like for you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Slaves, this is what it looks like for you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's union and equality. There's this thing about masters. Treat your slaves worthy of honor. It's, it's this Genesis, it's Galatians 3. There is no slave, master, Jew, Gentile, male, female. There's something about the wall of hostility that's been broken in Christ and under Christ's leadership. And so 40 words, 40 words in the Greek in, Genesis, or in Ephesians chapter 5 are given to describe what being filled with the Spirit would look like for the wife responding righteously to the husband. And then Paul gives 150 words to describe the husband's responsibilities. 35 to children, 59 to slaves. But all of them are under the lordship of the spirit. Within Paul's day, there were no restraints for husbands. There were no restraints for masters. They could do anything they wanted. But Paul is saying, no, I'm I'm fighting for union. I'm fighting for equality here. And so here, here's, the, here's the instructions in, in five. Let's look in, uh, I really want to look at, at what's said to uh, husbands. Wives, be subject to your own husbands, verse 22. For the husband is the head of the wife. We'll, we'll talk about headship. As Christ also is the head of the church. So he compares husband, Christ, the bride, as church, he himself being savior of the body. Something about about Christ and how he saved us, how he cleansed us, as we'll read here in just a second. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Husband, your words matter. There's something about the way that Christ has loved us and the command for husbands to love our wives in that way and the power of Christ washing us with the water of the word. Look at this. It transforms us in verse 27 so that he might present to himself the church and all of her glory, which the glory is an inward radiance. This is Genesis 2-5 language. This is that potential being unlocked. Having no uh, spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies, union. He who loves his own wife loves himself, oneness, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. And then he quotes Genesis 2.24, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and they shall be joined together with his wife, and the two shall become one in flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Emoji head blown. This is about union. It's about oneness. I, I, the, I was meditating on, and I'm, I'm laying this, I was meditating on this um, as a husband 
in the early days of my marriage, and just I, I just I didn't do dating well, and when I got married, it was just we, God was putting back together the pieces, and I just wanted to love Larissa, and and I I I think about a day often that I want to put before you, and it's a day that we're all going to stand before the Lord and give an account. He's going to put fire to our lives, and our motives are going to be revealed. It's, it's a day. It's, it's on the calendar sometime. I don't know if it's today. I don't know if it's this week. I don't know if it's, you know, decades from now. But there's a day coming where we'll stand before him. And, and I was standing before the Lord, and, and, and I, I saw him examining my life by looking at my wife and how I loved her. Like, this is my neighbor. <laughs> like, I saw her, and all of a sudden, as I started looking at her with the Lord, I started seeing how God had designed her. And it's helped me to love her, and to cherish her, and to wash her, and to encourage her. And there's something about her submitting to me that unlocks and empowers, and then and then, and then as, as I, I in ways have submitted to her, and there's something that unlocks and empowers, and there's this respect that she has given me and a love that I give her, and there's this union, and is it perfect? No, I mean, we got in a tiff this week. But the tiff is always, it, it seems like it's always alleviated by someone submitting to the cross first. It's not me. Wives, submit to your husband. That's not that. I don't think that's ever come up because it just hasn't been the issue. The issue is submitting first to Christ. And this thing with women specifically, there's, there's just been religious systems and structures that have oppressed women. Study this. Any culture that has a high religious culture, whether it's Islam, been to India, Hindi, seeing Hinduism, Jewish cultures, even, even Christian cultures that have a spirit of religion, look at the women. They're always oppressed. That should tell us something. I remember I was with my bride, and I'm, I'm promise going to end it, and we're going to pray for one another. But I was with Larissa. I've told this story a number of times. It was just so powerful. Because when we were, uh, right before we got married, we were driving somewhere, and, and she's just smart. She's, she's, she's smart. And, and, and I was talking to her about her education, and she was... Uh, got her master's in speech therapy and just talked to her about, why, it sounds like you're really passionate about health and all that stuff. And she's like, I am. I was like, why don't you just be a doctor? You're smart enough. Went to Pepperdine, like, you can do this. And, and she looked at me and she said this phrase. She goes, well, I didn't think I could be. I was like, why, why wouldn't you be a great doctor? And, and as I started just telling her what I saw, she started crying. She'd never felt the permission to be a doctor as a female. And within 48 hours, she had her next two years planned of prereqs to get into med school. She finished those two years, and our first year of marriage, she got into TCOM in Fort Worth. She was going to be a doctor. We went to the orientation. We were going to be Dr. Mr. and Dr. Miller. It's been awesome. I was like, geared up for that. I was like, all right, Mr. and Dr. Miller. Um, she was going to go to it, and then uh, she wanted to do this for missions. She wanted to go to the mission field with it. And we started this little prayer meeting in Oakland a couple of months earlier called the Upper Room. And she came down the stairs one day crying. And I said, what's wrong? She said, the Lord asked me if I would, if I would give this up. The Upper Room is going to be the gateway to the nations, not medicine. So she, she dropped out like two weeks prior. But I saw the power of, 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 of looking at a daughter of God and saying, you can do that. You have permission to do that. And, and since then, now to see her preach and do the things that she's doing, it's just, it, it delights my heart. And I, I, I put this before you because I feel like there are women and men, religious men at times, have washed you with words or spoken words over you that have felt more like chains, more like ceilings than a sky and a wind. And the parents can go get their kids. So I, I want to... I want to ask if that's you. I just want to pray for women for the next two, three minutes. Um, men, go get your kids. Women, stay in here. <laughs> um, but if you're a woman in this lands, if you're a woman and you're like, man, I, I have felt this within church, I want to pray for you. Our ministry team's going to come up. But I want to pray for you as we, we, uh, we close this morning. Has this been helpful?
I want to pray for you. If you're a woman in this, this land, you're like, Michael, I, I really want, I, I, I just want to stand before the Lord and I want him to wash me. Would you just stand to your feet and I want to pray a blessing over you as we started and then, um, yeah, stand up if you would. <clears throat> All right, and if you're, if you're with your husband, or um, I just wanna have husbands, if you just put your hands on your wife, just, I guess husbands are going to get kids, so not all husbands are here, but, but Lord, I, I just wanna release a blessing over every daughter in this room. And I wanna, I wanna ask for your forgiveness for any, any ways that pastors, leaders, with, with good intention, have wounded you or hurt you, or you felt like there's a ceiling, you felt like, like, like you're a second-class follower of Jesus. I just want to break all of that off of you in the name of Jesus. And I want to plead his blood over you. And uh, I, want to, I want to bless you to, to manifest God's glory, to manifest his purposes, that every gift that he's put inside of you, every, every dream inside of your heart, I want you to see that God, your Father, has given you those and he has poured out his spirit and his spirit lives inside of you to empower you to walk out of those things. And you have a church family that believes in you and loves you and wants to set you free, to give you wings to soar as the Holy Spirit would guide and lead you. We bless you this morning. We honor you as wives. We honor you as mothers. We honor you as daughters of our great King. May the Esthers arise. May the Deborahs arise. May the Ruths arise. May the Marys of Bethany's come forth, O oh God. Lord, would the prophetesses like Philip's four daughters, would they emerge? Would you pour your spirit out so that women can prophesy? Women will prophesy, Lord. Release prophetic giftings and anointings. Send forth women into the mission field. Send forth women, Lord, to lead home groups. I think of Lydia, Lord, in Acts 16, who was an entrepreneur. She was a businesswoman. Release businesswomen for your purposes, oh God. Talked to a woman last night who was a pilot for American Airlines. She came up to me in tears and just said, I never thought I would be able to fly, but I had a, a pastor who told me I could, I could go into flight school, and now she's one of the top flight people, pilots, at American Airlines, it's just cool. Her husband's there, it's just really rocking. So I just bless you in humility, in grace, in truth, in Jesus' name, amen. He who the sun set free is what? Free indeed. All right, amen. Hey, if you need prayer, come and receive it. Uh, these people are armed and dangerous, come and...